Father in heaven, thank you so much for these moments that we can come together like this, that in freedom we can open your word and study it together. Father, I pray that you will bless your word this evening and that you will bless us. Lord, as we receive it, may it not just be a theoretical truth that we seek to understand with our minds, but may it be a beautiful, life-transforming truth that we embrace with our hearts. Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit. Guide me. Touch my lips, Lord. Open our minds and hearts. Let us be receptive to all that you have to tell us. For we ask this in your beautiful name, in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, amen. Amen. Okay, Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And uh, I'll just right away make a disclaimer here. Uh, we are gathered here this weekend to study the book of Romans. And as you understand, uh, in five sermons, we are not going to be able to go through 16 chapters. Uh, but what I have, uh, what we will endeavor to do is I will choose some portions that uh, I hope will inspire and bless you and also um, uh, encourage you to go back and to study more in depth the book of Romans because there's just so much here uh, for us. Uh, it is also a book that fits so well with the year 2017. Um, one of the students uh, already, Marcus, already mentioned how um, it's the year of Reformation. We are 500 years after Martin Luther. Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis on the uh, church door of Wittenberg in 1517. Here we are 500 years later in 2017. And uh, one of the books that Martin Luther wrote most about and preached most about was the book of Romans. And isn't it fascinating that he is using the book of Romans to oppose the church of Rome? Have you ever thought about that? When I say to you, what comes to your mind when I say the church of Rome? Many of you are thinking of the Saint Mary and the idols and the Pope and the veneration of saints and the candles and the holy water and all the traditions. But before there was a papal church, there were a gather of believers in the city of Rome. And it was to those believers that Paul wrote a letter. Isn't it fascinating that the letter to the book of Romans is the true gospel on display that was later distorted by the church of Rome? So we have to decide today, as we are seeing before our very eyes, the world gathered together, the, the Protestant denominations running back to Rome, as we see an ecumenical movement take place, we need to decide, are we going to decide to follow the church of Rome as it is today, or are we going to follow the letter of Rome, the letter of Romans? Amen? Because the letter of Romans opposes the present-day church of Rome. The letter of Romans is the pure, undiluted, unchanged gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? So let's study it together. Romans chapter 1 and beginning in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, he introduces himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and then immediately he tells us that he has been separated to the gospel of God. And uh, 
if you've read the book of Acts, you will know that, that the way that Paul was separated, the way that he was called as an apostle was a very dramatic turnaround in his life. He was on his way to the city of Damascus. He was on his way to persecute the Christians, and he met Jesus. He looked face to face, into the face of Jesus, and he had a radical turnaround, and he became an apostle. Now, verse 1 to 7, okay, Romans chapter 1, verse 1 to 7, is what we would call the greeting of Paul. But I want you to take notice of something. This, was, this has just came to my attention as I was reading it through again uh, today, that even in the greeting, Paul cannot contain himself to already start sharing the gospel. It's almost like he's going to say, you know, he's going to give them a, a greeting, and, uh, you know, maybe what, what do you do when you have a greeting? You maybe tell where you've been or what you've been doing or what you plan on doing or something about maybe your family situation, or when we give greetings to each other, we say things like that. Paul is going to give a greeting, and then suddenly out of his mouth just comes the gospel already. <laughs> Take notice of this, verse 2. He says, Paul, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Christ Jesus to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. And it's almost like he has this moment of, oh yeah, what was I doing? Yeah, this was, by the way, the greeting. Oh, oh yes, grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he just bursts out into a gospel declaration in his greeting to the believers in Rome. It's like you going, uh, you know, meeting your neighbor, and your neighbor says, yeah, it's a beautiful day, isn't it? And you say, yeah, it's a beautiful day. And there was another beautiful day 2,000 years ago when Jesus rose from the grave. He set us free from sin, and one day he's going to come back with great power. Oh, and have a nice day. You should try that. He cannot contain himself. He must share the good news. And when he's going to give his greeting to the believers in Rome, immediately out of his mouth comes the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is really, in a nutshell, the gospel, Jesus, how he came, what he did, and what we are called to be through his name. And then he follows in verse 8 to tell them about his desire to meet them in person. You see, Paul had at this point not set foot in the city of Rome. As a matter of fact, the book of Romans was written on Paul's third missionary journey when he was in the city of Corinth. Now, if you read the book of Acts, you will find out that Paul made three missionary journeys through Asia Minor, Turkey, what we now know as Turkey, and, and Greece, and, and such. But... The fourth journey was not a voluntary journey. The fourth journey that he eventually did make to Rome was one in which he was a slave. He was, a, he was actually on his way to be um, uh, judged in the city of Rome. But this, at this point, he's still a free man. 
And at this point, he is expressing his desire to come to the city of Rome. You see, you need to know something about the city of Rome. It was the capital of the empire. The, empire, the Roman empire was very large. The city of Rome was the capital. Paul had a great gospel ambition. And he thought, if I can get the message of Jesus Christ to the capital, to this great metropolis, this great city, then from there it can spread into the highways and the byways of this empire. So he had a desire to go there. By the way, on, on, on my last message on Sunday, and I hope you stay to the very end, my last message is entitled Gospel Ambition. And we're going to look at how Paul was a man that had gospel ambition. He was not settling for anything less than seeing the gospel impact as many people as it possibly could through the humble means that he was able to bring by God's power, through God's power. So we'll look at that on Sunday, our very final message, gospel ambition. But already in the first chapter, you can see this ambition coming through. Paul wants to go to Rome. Look at this, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you that I may impart you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I have often planned to come to you but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. This is the portion of the beginning of this letter in which Paul expresses his sincere desire to come to the city of Rome and to preach the gospel to them. So actually, the letter that he writes to them is kind of like an, 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 um, it is to pave the way. You know, this letter would re they would receive, they would read out loud uh, in, their, in their assembly, in the place of worship, and uh, Paul was in such a way preparing them for his own coming in which he would then share with them this gospel. So we have the greeting. The nutshell of the gospel is already in there. Then we have Paul's desire to come to them, verse 8 to 15. And then we come to what I would argue are the most um, known uh, verses in the entire book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. Verse 16 and 17. And this are, these are also the verses from which we have drawn our theme, the power of God unto salvation. Take a look at verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. 
Maybe some of you know these verses by heart. Paul says that he is not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now remember that the gospel of Jesus Christ was the story about a man called Jesus that claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God, but was crucified by his own people, however, rose from the dead, and then sent out his followers to proclaim this good news that he is alive and that he will one day come back. So you can imagine Paul traveling to these places where they've never heard this message before. And to then tell about a Jew. Now remember in the Roman Empire, the Jewish nation was a little bit marginalized. They were kind of looked down on. So here Paul comes and he has a message from already a region that is not very popular. And then he's going to tell them about a man that claimed to be something but then was put to death on a Roman cross, which was an utterly humiliation. But then he then rose from the dead. And so this message in itself it seemed a very difficult one to preach, a very difficult one to convey. And yet Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it. I am unashamed of this message because he knows something. He knows something that we all need to discover. And that is that this gospel, foolish as it may sound to the secular mind, in it is the power of God. Amen? In it is the power of God. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. It's not the power of man. And how sad it is that oftentimes we have made it the power of man when we go in our own strength to preach this gospel. This gospel is, does not have its origin in the human. It has its origin in God. It was God's plan, and it's God's power. And the power that comes from God leads to salvation, and it's for everyone, it says, for the Jew and also for the Greek. Verse 17 says, for in it, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed. The right, another word for righteousness is character. The character of God is revealed in the gospel from faith to faith. As we experience the gospel, we are experiencing the character of God, and by beholding, we are becoming changed. Our faith is strengthened from faith to faith as we put our trust in His love and in His mercy and in His grace and in His power. We behold Him, and we become changed from faith to faith. I love how it says that it's the power of God because I think so many times, so many times in this world in which we are living, we are looking for strength in ourselves. How many times do we talk about, you know, uh, becoming better people and looking at strategies and means and, 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 and unleashing the potential in us. And you look at all the self-help books of the world that talk how you, how you can become richer and how you can become uh, more healthy and how you can become uh, a better leader. And, and you have four points to success and five points here and seven points. And if you do this, you can become this. And in the midst of a world that is telling you that the power resides in you, the gospel message tells us that the power comes from God. Ultimately, there is no power in us. We receive power from above. So here again, the very core of the gospel message in verse 16 and 17. 
And now Paul makes a little bit of a transition. And the rest of the chapter, verses 18 till verse 32, is a description of humanity. Listen very carefully. A description of humanity that does not have the power of God in their lives. The book of Romans uses an extensive amount of words to portray the condition of humanity without God. And I believe there's a very, very um, important, that, that, that it's very important that Paul does this. It's very important that, that, that we um, study and look into this because we are not going to appreciate the gospel if we don't first realize the depth of sin and the utter, utter hopelessness of mankind without a Savior. You know, you, you, you may have heard this illustration before, but, you know, think about someone that, you know, goes to a beach on a beautiful day, and um, there's the sea, looks good, everything's fine, and, um, and this individual decides to step a little bit into the water, and the water is right up to his knees, and he's just enjoying his, his day, and suddenly someone comes up to him, grabs him by the arm, and pulls him out of the water and says, I saved you. The individual that is pulled out of the water is going to look at the other person as if he's crazy. I did not need salvation. I was doing fine. I didn't need saving. <laughs> but if you went for a swim and you found yourself being pulled out into the ocean and uh, suddenly waves are crashing on you and, and you're getting water you're swallowing water, and you're going under, and you're just struggling to keep above the water. And to make things even more dramatic, there's a shark that is circling around you, and he's getting closer and closer. Just use your imagination. And then you're looking like, what can I do? And suddenly in the distance, you see a boat, and it's coming closer and closer. And just before the shark takes a bite at you, there's a strong arm of a guy, and he pulls you out of the water into the boat, and he says, I saved you you're going to be thankful to that person for the rest of your life. Now, what's the difference? The difference is that you were aware of your need. We can tell people forever that God saves them, that Jesus saves them, and it's not going to mean much to them until they understand the depth of sin and they understand the human condition as it is portrayed in Scripture. And that's why the book of Romans uses an extensive amount of words and descriptions and scenarios to picture to us where we are without God, how utter helpless we are if we don't have Him in our lives, how our power means nothing. We are drowning in an ocean of sin, and we are about to be devoured by the enemy. And it's only then that we start appreciating salvation when it comes to us. So take notice of this description. Let it just pierce your heart and mind as I read now verse 18. And, and, and just take it in, the description of humanity. This is us, my friends, if we don't have the gospel. This is us if we don't have Jesus in our lives. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them for since the creation of the world 
his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Verse 24, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanliness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. And I'm going to stop right here. I'm going to read verse 25 our key verse in just a moment, but you get already a feel for where Paul is heading. Paul is saying, okay, you know, people have turned away from their maker. They have turned away from the creator. And instead of allowing the creator to make known to them his will, they are now devising in their own minds how they want to live. And this is catastrophic. When you deny the creator and you deny his design for you, you are going to now start to devise your own way and create your own life that you believe is going to lead you to happiness. Now, verse 25. This is our key verse, and I believe it's so relevant and powerful for the day and age in which we are living. Verse 25 says, It's talking about those that do not want to know him. It says, they have or who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Let me read it one more time. Who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The picture that we're getting here is that Paul is describing what happens when we deny the existence of a creator. When we say, you know, there is no creator, then what happens is that we start worshiping the created. You see, We are all going to be worshipers. Every single person born into this world is going to worship. The question is, what do we worship? Either we worship the creator that made us, and if we worship the creator that made us, then we are enjoying the design of his creation. We are enjoying his creation in the way that he designed it to be enjoyed. But if we deny the creator, then we are still going to worship, but we're not going to worship the creator. We're going to worship the created. And this you see all around the world. There are people that are worshiping the created things of God, but they're not acknowledging the creator. And what happens when you don't acknowledge the creator, but you started worshiping the created? What happens is you start perversing the way that God designed those created things to be enjoyed. 
So either we worship the creator and we enjoy his, his design, the way that these created things are designed to be enjoyed and, and, and the way they are designed to be experienced, or we worship the created and we try to find joy in that, but the created is an end in and of itself. It doesn't lead to anything more. And we start, and what happens is it is perverted and it leads to sin. Now, let's look at a couple of examples of how this plays out. And the Bible in Romans chapter 1 already gives us an example right after this verse. So let's continue to read verse 26. Romans chapter 1 and verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for that what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burnt in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things that are not befitting. You see, my friends, God, the Creator, has given mankind a gift, and it's a gift that is designed to be enjoyed in the communion, in the marriage of a man and a woman, and that gift is sex, sexuality, right? And what happens here, what we're reading here in Romans chapter 1, is either we can worship the Creator and we can enjoy His design in the context in which He has designed it to be enjoyed and experienced, or we can say, I don't want the Creator, but we still worship the created, and then it becomes a perversion. That's exactly what Paul is describing here in Romans chapter 1. Now, we live in a world today that is absolutely perverted when it comes to sex. I mean, it's just something that you see all around us. It is a ferocious attack of the enemy where we don't, no longer take the design of God, but we want to experience this in all kinds of other ways. And you know how this starts? This starts with a distortion of genders. Now, you know, the Bible from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 gives us a picture of God creating the man, Adam, and then he creates the woman, Eve. And in a sense, he conducted that very first wedding, that marriage. Marriage is something that we find in Scripture between a man and a woman. Marriage is a beautiful, beautiful, created design of God. But when we deny the Creator, but we still want the, 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 we want, we want the gift, but without the giver of the gift... What happens to the gift is perverted. What we see in our, in our world today in society is that they're seeking to change the very ways of God, to pervert the truths that come from Scripture. And we were seeing it not only happening in society, we're sadly also seeing it happen in the church. And this is not only when it comes to sexuality. This is, comes in so many different forms. You know, God has shown us in Scripture 
what it means to be a godly man, a godly husband, a godly father. The Bible talks about what it means to be a, a godly wife, a godly mother. But these pictures that we have from Scripture are, again, under attack, ferocious attack in our society today, where children are growing up not understanding their call to be a man or to be a woman, the identity that God has given us from the very beginning. Um, I just read the other day um, that in Sweden, they are now experimenting with new preschools, so kindergartens, where they have removed every gender distinction. In other words, they don't, and I read the article and I was just amazed at what I read because what they said is they no longer address the child as him or her. They are it. All of them are it. No longer him or her. They encourage, you know, um, the boys to play with dolls and they encourage the girls to play with cars. And there's nothing wrong in and of itself with that. But the problem here is that there is a continual attack on what we would consider the natural. There is a continual attack on gender distinction. And, and, and this attack is going on in society and uh, we are seeing it not only in culture, but we're also seeing it in church. The Bible has given clear roles to what a man should be like, what a woman should be like, how the two are to complement each other in church life. When we remove those distinctions and we start messing up in the name of equality, equality, we are actually removing the design of God and still we're seeking to enjoy His creation, but it is now a perverted creation. Romans chapter 1, verse 25 says, Who has exchanged God for a lie? It's a lie, my friends. A boy is created to be a boy. A girl is created to be a girl. It's a lie. And people are buying the lie. The, 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 the transgender movement is aggressive. The homosexuality movement is aggressive. And we're finding it getting inroads into God's church. And I want to say this with, with compassion because I know that many are the victim of these things. I don't want to be harsh, but I do want to be faithful to Scripture. Amen? I want to be faithful to Scripture because Scripture tells me that if these gender distinctions are removed, then what we have done is we have started to worship the created instead of worshiping the Creator. And God's design can only be fully enjoyed when we follow the designer, when we follow the one that has given this to us. You know, the, uh, the family, in many ways, is the building blocks, are the building blocks of the church. Think about it. What happens in the family happens in the church. It's like you have a little family here and a little family here and a little family here and a little family here, and those families together make up the church. Also, those families together make up society. So if the devil is going to destroy God's church, if the devil is going to destroy the society, what is he going to be, what is he going to aim on? The family. You know, I, I, it, just, it just pains my heart to see that in the age in which we are living, 
and the age in which my children have to grow up is a world where there is just this ferocious, um, masterly crafted attack on the family. I mean, to just destroy anything, any trace of the image of God on the family from the beginning. It is, an, it is the, 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 the most massively created attack at this moment that we are experiencing. You know, and we, at Seventh-day Adventists, we talk about the Sabbath, and of course we know that in the end days, you know, the Sabbath is going to be a great issue, and it's something that was given in Eden, and, and, and mankind is seeking to, to change that day of worship and has changed that day of worship. But, but, you know, even though that is a big thing, we see something else that goes all the way back to Eden. It's marriage. It's the family. And God is attacking the family. Uh, sorry, <laughs> Satan is attacking the family. God is defending the family right here, but there is an attack on the family, and our responsibility, I believe, as Bible-believing Christians is to come back to the Word and say, here I stand. Here I stand. I mean, the Reformation needs to continue, and the Reformation must, be, must continue as I come back to Scripture and I say, I don't want to exchange the truth of God for a lie. I don't want to end up worshiping the created. I want to worship the creator. Do you know that when you worship the created and, and you seek to get your pleasure out of the things that God has given without God, then you will always, listen very carefully, you will always be on a surface level of joy. Because only those things, if they're enjoyed in the context that they're not an end in and of themselves, if you enjoy them in the context that they always point to something bigger and greater, and that is the creator, then you will enjoy those things in the way that they were designed to be enjoyed. And that joy goes far, far, far beyond anything that we can imagine. Amen? And this principle of Romans 1.25, it can be applied to so many things. You know, physical exercise is a blessing. You know, to work is a blessing. To work with your hands. You know, the Bible says, whatever thy hand findeth to do, do with all thy might. You know, to work, to have physical labor, to, to have, you know, to, to, to exercise the body is a great blessing. But it's only a blessing when we understand that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit and that we have been given them by God and that God is to be glorified through our bodies. If we detach the Creator from um, our, our bodily you know, experience of, of working out or, 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 or sports or whatever, you know what becomes? You know what happens? We start worshiping the body. We start idolizing the body. And what, what happens? You look, look at competitive sports. Competitive sports have separated the maker, the creator, from the created. And what happens? It becomes full of pride and full of selfishness. You can apply so many things to Romans chapter 1, verse 25. Think about food. Is food a blessing? Amen. <laughs> you can say amen. <laughs> food is a blessing if we thank the giver of the food. If we thank the giver of the food and we enjoy the food the way that he designed it to be enjoyed, but again, if we separate the creator from the created and we seek to enjoy the created separate from the creator, what we find, what we come to is a perversion of appetite leading to sickness and death. This can be applied in so many areas. Think about relationships. Are relationships a blessing? If they are a relationship 
that is God-ordained, yes. God has given us a gift of friendships. He's given us a gift of relationships. But if those relationships are an end in and of themselves and they don't lead to a creator, then they become again an idol. You know, that boyfriend, that girlfriend, <laughs> if he or she does not know God and you are pursuing a relationship with her or him, you are pursuing an idol. But if the creator is in it, it can be the most beautiful thing ever. Are you with me? He says, silent. Amen. Romans 1.25, what a verse, what an experience. Let's read the rest of the chapter, though. Because Romans 1.25, if we experience pursuing the creature rather than the creator, then the outcome is made known in this chapter. It's just one example that is given regarding sexuality, but it continues there. We can read in verse 29, it says, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Paul is giving us here, under the inspiration of God, the outcome of a life detached from its maker. This is what life looks like. This is what life looks like when the creator is not part of your story. This is what life looks like when the power is not coming through the gospel. This is what life looks like when you pursue the created and you worship it separate from the creator. This is what life looks like. And it's not a pretty picture. Who would choose for that? And yet our hearts want it at times, don't we? And it's, and it's not, we cannot take it for granted that we wake up tomorrow being a Christian. I mean, it's a gift from God that he has given, placed faith in your heart to know him, amen? And we should thank him every single day that he can separate us, just like Paul was separated from the world, that, that we can be separated from the world and the sin in this world. I want to bring you to another verse in closing. Turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. We've looked at Romans chapter 1, but I want to close in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13. And I believe that the verse that we're going to read here in Jeremiah is a summarization of the experience that we have studied and looked at in Romans chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13. Listen to what it says. For my people have committed, how many evils? Two evils. They have forsaken me. This is God speaking. He says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And then secondly, they have hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
two evils that God's people are guilty of. And I, and I, would, I would say that, sadly, many in God's church today are guilty of these two evils. They have forsaken, God says, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. They, they have turned their eyes away from me, their maker, their creator. Uh, but, but not only that, they have, they have then sought to find their own pleasure in the things of this life. They have hewn themselves cisterns, but these cisterns, God says, cannot hold any water. What are, what are those cisterns? What's your cistern today? Have you hewn for yourself a cistern that you believe is going to give you happiness and joy in life only to discover that it's dripping and leaking and there's nothing left to enjoy? Why is it that so many people in our day and age today are miserable? Why is it that so many people always need some new high or hype some new adrenaline bur uh, you know, uh, burst because they're looking for purpose and meaning in a cistern that they have hewn out for themselves, but it cannot contain the living water because it's their own creation. They are worshiping the created rather than the creator. It's leaking. But if we want to experience God's joy, if we want to experience the power of salvation, then let us come to the source of that power. Let us connect ourselves with the living God, the creator God that made us and that designed us to live according to his way. And when we connect ourselves with our maker, then all the creation is at our exposal to be enjoyed in the way that he designed it to be enjoyed. When you are connected with the maker and you have the guide of life, the word of God, you can experience marriage, you can experience uh, food, you can experience work, you can experience all these beautiful gifts from God in the way that he designed it to be experienced and you will find true joy, true purpose, and not a surface level of joy, but a deep joy that words cannot express. That's what God wants for us. Why would, be, would, why would we be satisfied with less? You know, a couple of weeks ago, um, I was um, traveling to Malaysia, and uh, I was going to do a, um, a week-long lecture series in Malaysia, actually also on the Book of Romans. Uh, after that, I traveled on to Australia for some more meetings there in Melbourne. Um, it was um, a time where I was a couple of weeks away from my family, two and a half weeks. That, that was the longest time I've ever been away from my wife. I now have two children. Elias is three years old. Enoch is nine months old. It was hard. I already, I already was dreading the moment that I had to leave them. And um, but anyway, I knew that the God was calling me for this um, trip, and so I was trying to make the best out of it, but already on the flight towards Malaysia, every kilometer that I'm getting further away from my family, I say, two and a half weeks, Lord, this is going to be really difficult. <laughs> Eventually, I landed in Kuala Lumpur, the capital of Malaysia. I was just a very, very tired. I was thinking about my family. 
I'm never really a good sleeper on planes. And you know, for the last 15 years as an international evangelist, I've traveled all over this globe, but I sleep very bad in planes. I can hardly sleep anything. And uh, I've never flown in, in business class or first class. Never. I always fly, you know, in economy class. And so um, sometimes, every time, you know, when you, you know how it is, you walk, they, they make you walk through that area. You're going to sit in economy class, but they, they make you see those seats. Like, why do they do that? That's torture in and of itself. So you're like, oh, I can't, I can't lay down there. <laughs> and so you get to see it, but you can never experience it. And so I'm tired and I've arrived. These are the kind of moments that you look like your passport picture, you know, just worn out. And, and here I am, and, and I'm going to get into the car, and the guy has, has come to pick me up, and I don't know who he is, never met him before. I'm very tired, haven't slept for many, many hours. I had a layover in uh, Abu Dhabi, so I'm just, I'm just exhausted. And I thought, maybe I'll get a little bit of sleep in the car. And the moment I, stand, I sit down in the car, uh, the first thing that he says, as he closes the door, he says, it's testimony time. <laughs> and I'm like, um, I've, always been, I've always enjoyed testimonies, but right now, I just admit, I, I don't want to hear any testimonies. <laughs> I just want to sleep. But he says, it's testimony time. And he says, okay, I'll start, he says. And he shared his testimony for the next one and a half hour drive till we arrived. So, and, and, you know, I was so tired. And I thought, okay, just put on a smile and say, I'd love to hear your testimony. And he starts sharing. And in the beginning, I was really tired. But he's only like a couple of minutes into his testimony. And I'm sitting like right straight up in my seat. And I'm listening to every single word that comes from this young man. Suddenly, I was just like quickened to life. And this young man, he starts explaining. And he says, you know, um, I've been a drug addict. He was about my age, probably 35, 37, something like that. He says, I've been a drug addict for the last decade, I have been, um, I've been living a homosexual lifestyle for the last decade, multiple partners. He has just been living in the dirt and mire of sin, wallowing around in it. He has been hurt. He has been, he has been uh, a multiple times, he, he came to a point where he just wanted to end his life. And he's explaining to me, and he has tattoos all over. I was a little bit shocked when he said, like, I'm picking you up. I was like, I don't know. But um, he knew my name, and so I said, Lord, I hope this is right. <laughs> so, so I got into the car. But it was right. The guy had tattoos all over the place. He, he, he lived this life, just the most wildest experience you can imagine, and then as, but then he says, and there's just tears in his eyes, and he says, but Jesus saved me. Jesus saved me. He, he, he pulled me out of that life, and he set me free. And he started explaining with tears in his eyes the, the experience, the joy of the cross, and the joy of salvation, and the joy of the Christian walk. And as I listened to him, fully quickened, I thought, what I am going to preach this entire week, I have now seen with my own eyes. Because, my friends, the book of Romans is not some theoretical truth that you just receive 
from a book. It is an experience that touches the heart. Amen? It is a deep experience that is life-transforming. I mean, what I have given my life to is not some other teaching like any other teaching that we receive in high school or college or university. I'm not interested in a book with good ideas. I'm interested in a gospel that is the power of God. I'm interested in a gospel that has the power to transform those that have fallen the deepest into sin. Hebrews 7.25 says that he is able to save to the uttermost those that come to him. And when we start seeing that, my friends, we, re we realize the power of the gospel, the power to set us free, and the power to lead us back, not to the created, but to the creator, and to experience all the creation in the way that the creator designed it to be experienced. So how many of you want to say tonight, that's the God I want to be part of following? I want to follow that God. I want to be part of His kingdom. He is my creator. And I want to enjoy all of creation in the way He designed it to be enjoyed. How many of you say, yes, that's me? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I look forward to our continual journey in some of the chapters of the book of Romans. But tonight, I pray that as we have started together here, that you will have a heart that yearns for the power of the gospel, that you will have a heart that yearns to live according to your Creator and the way He designed you to be. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.